to the cloud. All right, welcome everybody. Chapter eight. Um, this is, you know, let, we left off with uh, Albert Mizrahi's favorite and Morris's. Uh, no, it's Albert's favorite chapter last week, chapter seven. I think Morris's favorite chapter is coming up soon. Uh, I, I don't know if you have a favorite chapter. Okay, but at least last week was Albert's favorite chapter. Mine's timer. Um, ah, I love that one too. Um, we left off last week with this pasuk. But see, this I did find. Right? God made men plain and simple, but they have engaged in too much reasoning. Right? That, you know, before we ate from etzadat in a way, everything was simple. Things didn't have to be so complicated. But then we started philosophizing. We started making all these extra meanings and insisting on different things. But it really only created more and more issues for us. So we end up finding ourselves in a way like the way that Kohelet is. He's despondent. He's lamenting this fact of his ignorance, the fact of the limitations of his understanding. We often talk about in our friend group, the left brain, right brain dichotomy. There's only so much. And we mentioned this. Thank you so much, Rabbi. We mention this every week. Everyone take a Tanakh who needs I mentioned this every week that there's only so much that your left brain can comprehend. Your left brain could dissect as much as it wants, but really there's certain things that only the right brain can experience and understand. Um, so that's been a theme, you know, running through my life, certainly. And for, for me also, I see it in the book a lot. Um, so just to give a, a brief introduction to this chapter. So like we said, we left off with this idea of chokhmah and this idea of trying to be inquisitive about the world, trying to understand, realizing the limitations of it. And now we're going to see a little, a little bit of a, of a shift in, the, in Kohelet's tone. He a little bit flip-flops throughout the book. But again, he's not a political candidate. It's okay to flip-flop because it's a very real human thing to do. Humans think different things at different times because we're complicated, because we relate to the world differently. Uh, and that's just the way that life is. Sometimes it gets messy. Um, so let's read. Chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise man and who knows the meaning of the adage, right? Or the, uh, the proverb in a way. A man's wisdom lights up his face so that his deep discontent is dissembled, right? So what do you guys make of that? What do you think that means? A man's wisdom lights up his face so that his deep discontent is dissembled. So it seems like it's, yeah. What is it, dissembled? Dissembled is, is, you know, it comes apart. Yeah. So his discontent is no longer in a way. So it sounds to me like he's really praising this concept of wisdom, that wisdom now all of a sudden is a good thing. What kind of wisdom he's talking about? I think the because, same. Because before he said um, too much wisdom is bad for you. Yes. That's why I'm saying he's flip-flopping. I don't know if there's flip-flopping though, depending on the kind of who knows the meaning? Who is like the wise man who knows? See, this is a specific kind of wise man mm -hmm. who knows this idea that wisdom is going to light up a face and disassemble whatever deep discontent. So maybe there's a certain wisdom. kind of wisdom that is not as. Like, what, what, what was the wording last time when it said wisdom makes. Oh, no. I mean, he mentions many times throughout the book that wisdom is folly. That Chokhmah is also heavy. He said too much thinking you know? is going to twist you off. Yeah. Did he just say that? I mean, uh, he probably said Yeah, the last thing he that, said right there. It's on his oh, Heshe Bonot Rabim. Oh, you're talking about the, literally the previous Pasuk. Yes. So, so, exactly. Yeah, so it's, it's not. It, uh, 
I think this is two sides of the coin that there's certain, like when we say, I'm thinking of Khonin Adad, yeah. like what kind of wisdom are we asking? Maybe there's certain kinds of wisdom that don't like leave you with discontent. Could disassemble your discontent, like knowing about like Beautiful, practical wisdom. Practical, 100%. Wisdom of, of and that's the interesting thing. As much as he says wisdom is folly, he also says, but it's better than like just you're, being you're a fool. You're reading this whole book about the, like, the happiness, I thought, this is right. Yeah. Like that kind of wisdom that'll make, like, like that'll help you be more. So that's the thing. In this book, he says sometimes, as much wisdom as I think I amass, I'm still unhappy and I still feel like everything's lacking. And then other times he says, but still, wisdom is more valuable than complete foolishness. Even so, even if it's all folly, it's a little bit better than complete folly. But let's see. Let's see how he develops it because it's well, not. I'm not saying it makes him happy. Well, yeah. saying it lights up his face. I, I, yeah. It's interesting analogy. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to, I think it's just a poetic way of saying, but you're, let, let's see, there's a couple of explanations of this that I wanted to give. Um, you know, so first of all, you could say who is like the wise man. Um, but there's an interesting reading that if you parse the letters differently, they, they love to do this based on other readings, like the ancient Greek versions of the text actually have it instead of me, they have it as me, who here is wise or who is so wise as to understand this? And it changes the, the understanding in a way where now it's, it's not, you know, something that is uh, looking up to it, but it's saying, who, is there anybody that could really say that they do this? It's almost rhetorical, like this is impossible. So it would be in line with the previous pasuk saying it's impossible. Any wisdom that you could have completely will never even help you. So there's different ways of, of reading it, but you know, I don't, I don't know that there's necessarily a way of smoothening out everything that he says about Chokhmah throughout the book. That's the, that's the only point I'm trying to make, you know. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's certainly different feelings that he has towards wisdom in general throughout the book. That's, that's my, that's my opinion. Yeah, 100%. I don't think that's a problem to, to say that he's, he has different developments in his life. Mm -hmm. I thought everyone sure. just like so that's I I don't I personally don't take the opinion that it is shalom law, but if you the hachamim would say that. No, but I'm saying like even if it's not shalom, mm -hmm. would it still be like just an old man? Oh it, yeah, but I, still, an old man could have different feelings at different times when he's thinking. But also, he says I did back in the day. Like sometimes he's talking about the past. Like I realized then that mm -hmm. that, that wisdom wasn't important, but maybe he's not realizing it now. Yeah, sense? no, but he says in the present moment that he oh. sees it as folly many times. He says, okay. that's the only reason I, I, I wish, I wish, you know, we could see that kind of a consistency, but you don't, and that's not necessarily well, a problem. It doesn't bother me. That's what well, I'm trying to say. So I, I didn't mean to say, I, I, I wish it was that simple. I wish it was that simple, but it's not, you know, but for your sake, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Right. So the, this idea of Davar also, it's an interesting word to use. They, they interpret it as adage or proverb. You know, but the word davar also could mean anything. You know, who could understand anything? And if you, in a way, you could read it as, who could understand the meaning of anything at all, right? Because the implicit answer is no one. No one can really understand anything. And we've seen this in last chapter, because nobody knows the outcome of anything, nobody could actually give you a, a wise piece of advice because nobody could predict the future. Nobody could say they know that X will produce Y will produce Z. It's never a consistent thing. And therefore, nobody could ever really give you a wise piece of wisdom. It sounds very downbeat and, and you know, but it's, it's kind of lamenting the fact of, and it's very humbling to notice, look how limited we are. We don't know what's going to be. 
we have we think that we're so smart we think we're manipulating nature especially today in the 21st century you look around you see all the technology we have you see all the accomplishments that we're that we're having but at the end of the day what do we have to show for it we still will suffer from a covid uh pandemic you know there's only so much that our might can can accomplish as humanity so it's just uh, that's kind of the way i take it it's it's humbling it's humbling to notice the limits of our knowledge but let's see the flow here now i think he's going to get um so sorry before i have a couple more points that i want to make Anybody have any comments? Of course, I want to hear from you guys. Anybody else have anything to say? Yeah. Like one fact that Yes, 100%. It's very common, you know, uh, but that's a different thing. But yeah, light and wisdom and knowledge very often have a, a common archetype. And, you know, this idea of I wanted to make a point about that this idea of what does it mean that it's gonna it's gonna change the discontent it's gonna be this disassembled it's gonna completely get rid of that what does that mean why would why would wisdom do that for you why would wisdom get rid of your deep discontent and according to this adage how does that happen well it seems like okay once you have insight into something once you understand it you're less you have less of this turmoil inside about it um, and then, you know, we're going to talk a bit, a little bit about power soon, but first I just want to say what Ben Sida would say, Ben Sida rephrases this entire Pasuk. And instead of this, he says, the heart of a man changes his face, whether for the better or for the worse. So what he's saying is that it's not all peaches and cream, that this chokhmah, this wisdom is not going to ta'ir panav, but rather your heart is the source of all of it. Your emotions create the first thing. And then once that happens, it changes the way that you react towards things. Um, and then it's going to either be a good thing or a bad thing. But it seems like Kohelet, for a change, is focusing on the positive here. He's only focusing on the positive element of that. I know it sounds a little fuzzy, but I'll try to explain a little bit more. So now, because the rest of this uh, pedic or this, the rest of this section is going to be describing this idea of about a melech, now, once, if we kind of skip ahead, ani pi melech shemor, I do obey the king's orders and don't rush into uttering an oath by God. So now you could really only, only it's been very unclear. What the heck is he saying here in verse one? It seems you could only understand that in context of verse two, that there's something now he's going to talk all about how to be smart around authority, how to be smart around a, a despot or a king that you don't know how he's going to act. He's going to act in very scary ways. So now he's, by, by noticing this, what does this mean now? Oh, you should kind of be careful with, the, with your facial expressions. Be careful with the way that you show yourself. Leave his presence. Do not tarry in a dangerous situation for he can do anything he pleases. So it's this fear of authority, this fear of a, of a despot. And I know, Albert, you told me in a lot of ways you see this is talking about God, that this melech could be talking about God. So in a very philosophical sense, you could say, look, look how afraid Kohelet is. He finds himself as this limited human among 7 billion people. That's who we are today. And however many people in those days, he's afraid. He's scared. He doesn't quite know what's going to be. And it's if, if he's in the presence of God and he feels like he wants to have this wisdom and he feels like he wants his, his face to be lit up with that, but he also has to be careful. He doesn't want to, 
you know, do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. And then everything's going to kind of blow up in his face. Because remember what we said in previous chapters, in his eyes, it's all arbitrary. There's no rhyme or reason to the way that the world works. There's no rhyme or reason to human justice and God's justice. And things just happen arbitrarily. And because they're happening so arbitrarily, God in his eyes could be seen as this despot, as this scary ruler. And therefore, it's best to just kind of, you know, like we're going to see soon, enjoy the pleasures of the world. Because we don't quite know the way things are going to be. And, you know, but I don't think that's necessarily the shot. The shot now, it seems like he's talking about a real king of flesh and blood. And I know to go back to the whole thing, is it Shilomo HaMelech, is it not? Why would Shilomo HaMelech talk about, you know, being afraid of a king? To me, that's why it makes more sense to say that Kohelet is this fictional character, like the way that Michael Fox would say it. We could debate that for a long time, I know. But um, it seems like he's trying to give wisdom now regarding how to get by in a scary government. How do we get by when there's a king, a despot, somebody, or, you know, a lot of us grew up with, with a parent that not necessarily always had very good rules. You know, there's, there's different parenting styles. You learn about in psychology, right? There's authoritative, authoritarian, and then there's uh, permissive. Interesting. So the, the, right, there's, there's the one that like lets you do whatever you want. Authoritarian is like the scary one. They're like despotic. And you, you don't quite know what's going to be. And because they're so erratic, they're, they don't have justice. They don't have rules that they're consistently going by. But rather, the child is afraid and they, they have this type of attachment with their parent that is unhealthy because the parent doesn't have a consistent way of reacting with them. So it could be like that with a king. It could be that way with a king of flesh and blood. And it could also be that, that way with God. If you're expecting a certain relationship with God and you're expecting to approach the world and give it your best shot and then the world doesn't produce that for you, is there anything more tragic than that? You know, and, and that could be, for me, when I read Kohelet, I see a person who is responding to that way of seeing God. Yeah. So just going off of what Mark saying about when I die, like, I just, I get the sense that, like, there's just these two sorts of wisdom. Wisdom where you're philosophical and constantly in the struggle between what you know, what you can learn, what you don't know yet, but the awareness that there is that, that knowledge that can be learned. Um, and then there's just like the practical, like whenever I think of practical wisdom, it's just like, and every time I pray when I'm on that, it's usually when I have to make, I mean, when I pray it like extra extra hard, when I have to make a decision. Mm. So I'm just thinking of like what you just said about like, you're not really sure about the king, what his next move is going to be. Exactly. Your parent. Like, I think that's when you're least content, when you have, when you're just in that state of mind of like complete doubt or yes. not uncertainty. And so when I think of wisdom and it bringing contentment and happiness, and happy face of like light is usually it's like awareness of how to make a decision to choose and then like have knowledge that that is the wisdom that God yeah having some degree of stability we love to to find a rhyme or reason in things we like to see people getting their just desserts good things happening to the righteous bad things happening to people who deserve it it seems and and that gives us that that lit up face i feel like you're talking about it too ideally though like on a simple matter just like it's be, it's not being caught up in indecision it's having clarity mm -hmm. it it's it's and that's here he's equating clarity, and it's funny. I, I don't know if this is the right translation, but English-wise, it says he says "ani," 
Mm-hmm. It's like, Anio, Dio, Dea, Anio, Dea. And it says, the way he defines, I guess, the first sentence is just obey, obey Hashem and don't say anything. Don't, don't make it, don't make a false note. Like literally just like follow the rules. Yeah. And you'll, and you'll be the, like the Chacham who's not getting stuck in. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's exactly. Right. Whether it's talking about God or human, 100% that just get by with practical wisdom and that will carry you through. But I think at the end of the day, like I know we, we talk about this in our friend, like you guys go for the cold plunges. And when you're in there, you feel the, the gravity of what you're doing and that it's almost like nature could just sweep you away and it won't even make a difference to the world if you just completely get, you know, the undertow takes you and that's it for you. Like, the, does the universe really care about me? Is there any, is there really a difference whether I live or die? It's a very scary What's question. And then the next pasuk, Amalek, right? Because you open up the question of doubt, and then Amalek, what the Hachamim say, Amalek represents the Safik, because the previous pasuk is, is God with us or not? You know, so like all this stuff to me is, is a person realizing, you know, that, that he's not doing what so many religious people do. So many religious people will just comfort themselves and say, yes, God loves me, and I know it, and, and lovey dovey. And they're hitting the dopamine constantly. But if you really want to take a very honest perspective on the world, it seems that that's what Kohelet's doing. He's saying, look at nature. Things happen that don't exactly make sense to our human capacity to understand the world. And we feel very often that the universe could give a damn about us. And, like, you know, and, and it's a scary thought. But, and now let's see what he, what he does with this. And not just the universe. So that's when you take it from a divine perspective, even just from a, a governmental perspective, a, a melech of flesh and blood, you know, be careful. This is also a despotic guy. He's authoritarian. It's so, you see what it does to children who have a parent who is erratic. Their attachment is very unhealthy and they're going to relate to people in very unhealthy ways the rest of their lives, either by being way too close with them and being in an abusive relationship or by being way too, you know, distant from people. It all comes from attachment styles. So, you know, when you have a government that that's that's that way, what's going to happen? It becomes a very scary thing. You know, people don't exactly feel content. They're not at peace. And it, it's kind of a recipe for disaster in a way. Um, this sounds like the beginning of the Iraq. Hashem, yeah. Sense, like the United States is fear. The fear. It's taken as awe, but it could also be seen as like at least on the surface level as fear. Yes. Yes, just raw fear of yeah. being alive, you know, that you don't know what's going to be, 100%. And it's a scary thing. You know, you see the fragility of life. Life is very fragile. You know, it's not as sturdy as you might have thought it was when you grew up. That's a, a thing to realize. Um, and then Ben Sida also says, the sign of a good heart is a shining face, while withdrawal and brooding are, uh, are signs of wicked plans. So he, he's basically giving you advice. That when you're going through life and you're dealing with scary, difficult people, the best thing to do is just smile and move on. Because a, a despotic ruler, the best thing for him to think about you is that you're just completely at ease. The scariest thing for him is somebody who has discontent. So if you want to bring that back to God, it's almost like what he's saying is, if you really want to just be on cool terms with God, just smile and keep walking through. Stop, you know, don't don't show God your Maybe you're chagrin at certain things because maybe he'll get angry at you. I don't know if you want to take that perspective, but you know that you could keep that as one interpretation. Um, so let's see. So now uh, I don't want to say anything about verse two. I don't think verse three. Again, it's just it's all about fear. 
you know, just get out of his way as soon as possible because you don't know what's going to happen. So now let's see what he says in verse four. Any questions or comments? Why are you saying So that's the, I think the Hachamim read that into it. A lot of it. Yeah, I guess it's the Melech stuff. Yeah, but isn't that like, like why, would you, why are they saying like run away from God? Yeah, I mean, um, like the, isn't the whole thing like turn to God? Yeah, to God, this is, God? yeah, this book is not really in line with that. It's more of seeing God as just, God has his justice. We're going to point a lot about this towards the end of the chapter. But even though God has his justice, that doesn't mean that we can understand any part of it. And therefore, the way to relate to it sometimes is just completely out of fear. Don't make any, you know, don't rock the boat in a way with God. But you're right. I don't think it's necessarily shot. I'm just trying to give like lessons based on it that we could take and then maybe see his perspective from a different view. But I do think he's talking about a, a governmental ruler, like a despot, a real tyrant of his time. That's what I think the shot is for sure. hundred um, percent. So let's see. And as much as the king's command is authoritative and none can say to him, what are you doing? Right. So. Nobody could ever take the king to task because he's the highest level. And you know, I guess, you know, the, uh, it, like he points out here in the interpretation, in his uh, commentary, Eov himself uses a very similar phraseology when he's talking to God. So you can't help. It's almost like you can't help but read God into this because it really is a God question. Even if it is about people that are Basar Vadam, and then it's like, okay, God, why did you let this happen? it always becomes a theological question. How can you allow these kinds of people that are so tyrannical and so authoritarian to rule our lives? So Eov says, uh, you know, and he doesn't quote the Pasuk here, but to describe God despotic authority. You know, nobody could ever challenge you. What are you doing? He says, I'm going to do that. Eov says, I'm going to challenge you because nobody else does. And, and it's like, a, it's, it's a feeling we all get when tragedy strikes. God forbid someone's family member or something, you know, I got a million, million times, but you could see yourself seeing God this way. You read Megillat Echa after the destruction of, of the, the temples, right? It's crazy. Very depressing. Very depressing. And, 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 and the words in time, like Ayeka. Ayeka. Right? Back to Where are you? Like, what are exactly. you? What's going on? It's so depressing. It really is. Yeah. And it describes God as like targeting people. God is like a, a, a guy, a marksman shooting people with arrows. That's the feeling we get when we see life as arbitrary, when we don't see the meaning, when we don't feel God's imminence in our lives, we see how we could get to this level. And it's relatable when God forbids something really bad happens. So I think that, like I always talk about catharsis in this class because people are not going to want to come if we get so downbeat and scary and, you know, so depressing every week. But I think it's catharsis. When you when you come on Tuesday night for an hour every week, you allow yourself to talk about these very difficult things. You you channel the fears to this hour, and then the rest of the week you can go about it. Not and you, if you have a crazy thought, say I'll talk about it on Tuesday night. See if Michael wants to talk about it. You know, so that that's the catharsis is going through this process, seeing where your brain can lead you when the world is scary like this. That's the way I see it. Um, yes. Working. So, apologies if you didn't. No. Could you speak to Jacob, like a summary of what's happening up until this point? And, like, what was happening up until this point in Kohelet? And now, where are we going from there? Great question. Like on the same context. Yeah, I mean, he, he sets out in the beginning of the book that he, he says, I wanted to find wisdom. I wanted to understand the world. And I wanted to find really what is worthwhile to do 
to find the meaning in life. And he doesn't. Like, he's saying a lot of things are nothing. Yes, right? and that's, that's basically. Why you get into this like somewhat depressing tone. Yes. But there's a lot of messages along the way, and that's what we're sort of focusing on as we continue forward. Hundred percent. And I also want to point out where I think he goes wrong. I think he has a lot of black and white thinking. I think he didn't belong to enough groups. He didn't do enough things that make him feel larger than himself. He doesn't focus enough on love. Like you guys missed it. Last chapter, he talks about women in the most terrible way. Uh, just to show you. I mean, I don't want anyone to walk out here. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Um, As for what I sought further, but did not find, I found only one human being in a thousand. And the one I found among so many was never a woman. He says, of one worthwhile person, one person I thought was like, uh, you know, a person of valor in a way. And he says, it never was a woman. The one out of a thousand that I did find. Say it again. Oh, yeah. And then he says, yes, you're right. Oh, you're not letting me off easy. Um, yeah, he says, woman is like more bitter than death. She's, you know, snares and traps and all these terrible things and you know you should run away from her and you, you get you get ensnared <laughs> and and you know it's it goes to show you for me it gives you an a, an insight into the person that he was some of the commentators even say maybe this character never found a woman in his life maybe he just got rejected so many times and you, you hate to say it but maybe it's possible if it's not chillamore you know like if he didn't have a thousand wives you know so, so the point is that this is clearly a person who's hurting in a lot of ways. I see him as suffering from major depression um, very often and, and nihilism. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to diagnose. Yeah, yeah. I like to diagnose. I think diagnosis helps people. You know, but so so yeah. It's it's definitely up for debate. But just he he wanted to find wisdom. He wanted to find something to grasp onto, but he couldn't find it, and he's lamenting it throughout the book. But yet, he still thinks wisdom is better than folly. That's the funny part. As much as he bashes wisdom and criticizes it and said, says that wisdom is folly, he still thinks that wisdom is inherently more valuable than folly. And that's uh, the word inherently is a word that's come up many of these classes because we, you stop doing things for the sake of another thing. Do them for their own sake. Find those things that are meaningful inherently. You don't hang out with your family. You don't play with your two-year-old nephew because you want to get something from him so that he'll sneak meds into your hospital room when you're 85. That's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because he's your nephew and you want to play with him because that's inherently meaningful. Right? Uh, some comedian says that line about sneaking. Well, it's a good example. Right? I'm, glad, I'm glad you approved. Exactly. I'm saying that's the point. You shouldn't do that. Exactly. I'm saying other people can have different motivations. Yes. Even with playing with Ah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. people can. Yeah. That's the problem. Um, so, so I just, yeah. I, I wonder. Sure. This line just screamed to me the line from Tehillim. I knew I had seen it before, and it was thirty-four. It says, "Come, listen to me. I will teach you what it is to fear the Lord. Who is the man who is eager for life? Mm -hmm. um, exactly. That's almost like you know, leave it just to not." Uh, you can do anything. Oh, yeah. No, do not do not rush into uttering an oath by God. Obey the king's orders. Fear the king and do not. Oh, sorry, that one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was almost like that. It was very similar. 
a lot of it's about speech. Yeah. Exactly. Beautiful. 100%. Speech is a very big theme in a lot of these, these wisdom literature. You know, speaking correctly. And we always talk about being impeccable with your word from the four agreements, you know, to yourself, to others, 100%. Shomer mitzvah lo yeda davara so pasuk he ve'et mishpat yeda leb hacham. One who obeys orders will not suffer from the dangerous situation. A wise man, however, will be will bear in mind that there is a time of doom. <laughs> so you know, this is very. He's afraid. That's the only thing I could see here is that the only you know thing that he could see is just to have obedience. When you have a scary ruler like this and a, a crazy court official. Just completely obey everything. And even so, even if you do obey everything, and again, even if you obey all of God's commandments, you could still end, everyone's going to end up with the ultimate doom, which is death. No matter what you do, you will never avoid that ultimate fate of death. So just to make a couple points, and then I'll open up to, to some more comments. A time of doom is death itself, like we said. And then you, if you want to say a time of judgment, would be when God punishes the tyrant. So that's another way of looking at it. Instead of saying et mishpat could be for every person, rather you could say that the time of judgment for the tyrant that we're talking about, for the despot. Even if that's the case, you know, that, that, that the person is going to get his just desserts, the, it's, it's best to just keep your head down, be obedient, be pliable. And this is something I've had, you know, when you deal with doctors in the hospital, these guys have a God complex, they have a crazy ego. And sometimes the best thing to do is just to completely be uh, obsequious in a way, just to, you know, submit, just to submit. Oh, I do that. But the problem is I have to make sure not to make fun of them. I need to make light of the situation in a way that it doesn't make fun of them. And it doesn't always work. I'll be honest. So this guy, this one dude that I dealt with didn't even want me to have any comedy. So I was just silent the whole time. Eventually, I mean, the first two weeks, literally two out of five weeks, I was making jokes. And he sat me down. He's like, why are you so annoying? <laughs> and I, I told him, well, you know, you're teasing me. I figured I'd tease you back. Yeah. I'm like, what, you want you want to dish it and not receive it? And he's basically like, yeah, this is my house. I'm like, I'll back off. You know, I didn't realize you're that kind of guy. You know, so that's kind of the way some people are. You know, and this is this is the guy we talk about all the time. I'm not going to say it, it's sure, but. Yeah. Uh, come to me after class if you want to hear that. So I won't be on the recording. Hopefully he doesn't. Li- I know he doesn't listen to my podcast, so we're good. Yes. I just. I think here they have a slave. Five. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. I'll, I'll show you later if you want. Yeah. The slave mentality is a, is a tough. The slave this is mentality. The scary thing about no longer being a slave. Mm. When you leave Egypt, you kind of have to say, "Damn, I have to make decisions for myself." You actually yeah. have to think about. You know, it's almost like when you leave your parents' house. Now, oh man, now you realize there's bills to pay. Oh man, yeah. like, like, oh my God. Like a wise man, however, will bear in mind that there is a time of doom. There is a bill to pay at the end. Ah, uh, yes. You're not the slave at the end, you know. There's a time of reckoning for yeah, whatever. It's, it's not necessarily death, spot. you're whatever saying. Yeah, it doesn't death. have to be death. When you're a slave, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about mm. your meal. You don't worry about anything. Everything's taken care of. Yeah. In, in that sense, even though you're kind of, you don't have to question life. You're just yeah. following commands. And a Beautiful. lot of people are Jews like this. And I mean, we could argue and say, like, in the beginning, Ms. Sharim will say, like, a lot of that it could be a fake form of Judaism, but it, but to an extent, and depending how you interpret it, but but uh, to an extent, what's better life? And I don't know. I, I don't fully know the answer, but but these people who follow blindly or the people who question him, mm. 
I just can tell you that the people who question everything will be more confused <laughs> yeah. and it's nauseating, but it can bring you to a more truer answer. Mm -hmm. You, you hit up against it enough times. And that's you... Abraham. Abraham's a questioner. You know, it's not easy being an inquiry. Yeah, that's what Yisrael means. You, you struggled with God and, and man. You yeah. prevail. You're supposed to struggle with it. You're supposed to challenge the status quo. You're not yeah. supposed to sit back and say this is God's will. God didn't create us to just accept the world. You know? There's no question that it could be easier. To, to, to be a person. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure it would. I'm sure it is. Like that smart person who wishes he was God. Yeah. But even them, I'm sure they, I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess if they, uh, if they really stick with it, I guess it's just an easier lifestyle. Sure. I hear that. So, sure. Yeah. It's it, this, the, the translation is JPS. They try to capture the connotation, not just the strict literal translation. So they see it as in line with the rest of the, the book and the, and the Pedic, this idea of et mishpat, a time of, of justice, sounds like the day of death for them, like a, a real, you know, justice. divine justice. Like that's because in line with other pesukim in the book, when he's talking about like that's the great equalizer at the end that we all have to wait for is death. Um, so, he, so this is the interesting thing. You know, Kohelet affirms divine judgment. Kohelet believes in God's justice. He believes in this, in this mishpat. So that's the great irony here. You, we think today, because we live in the 21st century, the response of so many people who would think like this is what is atheism? They're simply atheists. They say there's no justice, therefore there's no judge. Kohelet is not like that. Kohelet is not an atheist. He keeps talking about he believes in a God with justice. And yet he grapples with the lack of justice that he sees so even though he's affirming divine judgment, he, he does that a little bit inconsistently, but he also, he, he doesn't quite understand the world and he is able somehow to, to, to grapple with both of these. He doesn't come to any conclusion. He sits in the discomfort of seeing one thing and not knowing how it works. So we always point out how he's so non-Jewish in a certain way where the, the, the Nevi'im would say, okay, you see a world like this, get up and go change it. He sees it very much as inevitable. Like this is the way the world is and there's nothing you can do about it. But he's very Jewish, at least in the very least, in the fact of noticing and the fact of realizing and sitting with the discomfort of the cognitive dissonance. That's a very Jewish thing to say there's the world that ought to be, there's God and his justice, and there's the world that is without the justice. So the really Jewish approach is to say, let me go and fix that. The, this approach is no, there's nothing you can ever do. You will never make a dent. It will always be this way. Uh, humans are folly, their actions are folly, and just keep your head down and keep moving. And I, I think that's how the book ends, really. Yeah. I, I was just, you know, noticing how this is pretty much, a, that line, just, you know, number five, Yeah. pretty much foreshadows what he said at the end. The that, sense where you're doing, mm, you do whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Sorry. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> do, do, you, do, you, do, you, like, do you see how that's a, yeah, that you're saying kind that, of what that you're saying too, like he doesn't really come to a conclusion. He's not telling you there's an answer. Yes. You're just stuck here yes. doing whatever you want to do. Yes, 100 percent The 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 you're talking about it. Exactly. But it's really sort of maybe he's saying all these are hevel. It is kind of true because he's not really not really changing up anything. hundred percent. He's just expressing this just this dissonance that, within right. himself. Right. And it's a it's a great honesty to it. If nothing more. There's a tremendous honesty to this book that's that's really laudable. 
You know, because so, th this is the only book in the whole Tanakh that I think does this. It's the most subversive book for that reason, because it raises these philosophical issues and doesn't really answer them. But even Eov ends on a uptick. Even Eov ends where he's overwhelmed. He says, Hen kaloti He says, I'm so overwhelmed by God now that I, I see how much I don't know. And therefore, you know, I should not have spoken so cavalierly. Kohelet mm -hmm. wouldn't say that. He would just say, no, this is just the way that it is. And he comes to the conclusion of it's all absurd. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Maybe there's Nihilism. time, there's time to feel that way. Maybe there's time to show up. It's okay to feel that way. So Beautiful. You sound a lot like my Rosh Hashiva in Israel. That's what Rav Shilat said. He said, the reason we have a book like Kohelet is because it's trying to show you that inevitably, like I was saying, if you lose somebody or whatever it is, you're going to have these thoughts. You're going to have heretical thoughts at some point in your life. The question is, do you suppress them and repress them and worry? Maybe I'm not a good enough Jew and do Anna and, you know, salt the wounds. Or do you say, oh, look, how beautiful is this? We have a book in the Tanakh where Shalom HaMelech said all these amazing things that are so subversive. And yet he said them, oh, there is room for my heretical thoughts. And I could still be Jewish. Yeah, say more. No, but that's, there's a time for it. Ah, beautiful. Exactly. 100 percent right, yeah. there's a time for everything exactly and the irony is that he thought it would never be this is all he thought everything he was writing is heaven and it would never last the desktop and we're here now reading it yeah mom but you said that in a way this class i really appreciated the way you brought that idea down to earth which is this class can be an hour for that 100 percent. same way that tanakh could give us a place for it this class could be that place in time amen for you to have your questions 100 percent. you don't have to walk around with that stress all day Absolutely. And it's compartmentalizing and it's a very, very safe thing to do in that. Absolutely. I, I certainly agree. You know, Jordan Peterson talks about when his daughter had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, it was so overwhelming and they didn't know what to do. Like, you know, how do you deal with this? It's so much stress all day, every day. The daughter is in constant crazy pain. So what they decided was they'll take an hour every night from 8 to 9 p.m. Jordan Peterson and his wife. They also want I know, yeah, that's that's another thing. Yeah, but no, but this is an amazing coping mechanism that they did, which was for an hour every night, they they would discuss everything and every you know every detail of it, the nitty-gritty. And when they had concerns and worries throughout the day before that, they would say, Okay, write it down and we'll talk about it later. Well, that's how people feel when they're watching the news. No, they don't like it. No, they're probably watching the news. That's funny. Yeah, so it's I think it's a really it's a it's a mark of a very well, the thing you should like it's it's a very hard thing to do, especially in our field, like when you're dealing with, with people, with human beings, but in any yeah. field, to not take your work home with you, to be able to separate that and anything to be able to put boundaries between things, La Habdil. And that's a challenge every Shabbat to not bring your your your, your crap by like every that everything you're working on is done. You should think of that. And then I don't even ask for requests on Shabbat. It's taking out of the prayer of the request. Yes. Um, because you, it's supposed to be finished. You're, you're, and you not think about the week's work. It's an impossible task to do. I I, I try every week. Uh, you know, it's very hard. You've got to be very present. Yeah. But it's, a lot of um, mindfulness. But it's very beneficial. A hundred percent. space for anything. Compartmentalization, man. That's the yeah, key. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. hundred percent. Um, a couple more points here. We'll move on. Um, so this idea of et umishpat can mean either the time and right way or the right time. So this alternative is supported by the next verse and by the tenor of the passage. The wise man knows the right time and way to do things. 
like from, like you said from uh, chapter three, spot on, like smiling or remaining in the ruler's presence or leaving or swearing an oath. So this idea of et umishpat, it's focusing on the timeliness of it. There's a time to act in a very subservient way. Don't fight, don't die on this hill in a way. Like for me, I was telling you know Albert earlier, there's so many things that I, I see life brings me the same challenge in different forms, standing up for myself, finding my voice, not submitting. So that's what I often try to do now. I, I don't try to just give in because that to me would be failing at this ultimate test that keeps on presenting itself for me and asking me, are you going to finally stand up for yourself? Or are you going to just completely, you know, you know, throw in the towel again? But there are times where you have to just accept this guy as a period a, a position of authority over me where it really would not be very smart for me to continue to make these humorous jabs at him because he does control my grade. Yeah. Like in psychology uh, and also in general. Like in, I, I was going to say two things that both relate to this. So the first is just that uh, on a side note to like what you were saying about Hakohala is not an atheist. And if you think of like the Holocaust survivors I know who like spoke about their reactions after the war. Mm. And it wasn't, I don't believe in God. It was, I'm angry at God. Mm. There's a difference. Like, and I think Kohala speaks to that also because it's not a matter of does God exist? It's like, how do I... Um, comprehend that a god can exist but unjust things could happen in the world exactly so that's not concerning the existence of god or if god is existence but rather um how could there be an existence of god and also bad things can happen right it's a very theodicy oriented question. you hit the nail on the head and on that point of theodicy and surrender i remember like when i came back from poland i looked at my i was talking to my grandpa on the phone in israel um because we, we went back to israel from poland and I was just talking to him, and I always say the story because it was so like funny. Mm. But I was like, I don't know, God, and I, I just kept going on about God <laughs> and theodicy. And he looked, and he said on the phone to me, he goes, "Listen, you're talking about theodicy because you're three years old. You could give it a rest." <laughs> and I was like, I could give it a rest. Like sometimes surrender is the ultimate form of strength. Like you're you're just wearing yourself out if you yes. engage in this conversation too much. And like it goes back to that balance between being that questioning person as opposed to the one who might want to just go blindly follow, mm -hmm. right? There's a balance because the idea is that you want to be able to surrender when necessary and recognize that you can't control every little piece of your life, but you're also going to want to constantly be in control wherever you possibly can, right? Beautiful. So it's very difficult to let go of control, but sometimes you could let go of that control and recognize whether it's to the universe or to God, you can't do every single And that's the first step of mindfulness, right? The first step of mindfulness is surrendering to the moment, you know, and realizing, like you're saying, you don't owe your fears or these philosophical uh, thought loops any allegiance. You, you feel a little guilty, like, oh, you know, maybe I'm not being uh, responsible enough by not worrying about X, Y, and Z all the time. We never, that's the society we live in, but you start realizing it doesn't produce any good results for you. So maybe rather it's a better idea just to be present with the moment and realize like, okay, you're just a name it. Okay. You're just a fear thought. You're just a crazy philosophical thought loop. I don't have to entertain you. I can come back to the moment. Watch it like a passing cloud. Absolutely. There you go. Beautiful headspace stuff. Good stuff. Absolutely. That's right. Um, and then just a very interesting uh, resemblance, some, some random councils of Ahikad, I don't even know where he gets this from, um, you know, echoing this idea of 
you know, the, the anger of a despot in those days, uh, people lived in, in traumatic times and we could take a, a real appreciation. I look at so many of these, these certain people, certain groups of people, I don't want to name any specific political group, but you could probably guess which one I'm talking about, that they just are constantly complaining about the way that things are. And that's a very Jewish thing in a certain way. Yes, you can complain, but take a second to appreciate the, the beauty that you live in a government that is just. And I know that there's a lot of injustice and I know there's racism. I know there's inequality. I agree with you. But you have to also tell the whole story. Appreciate that we're living in one of the most beautiful times in history, one of the best times in history. And OK, you know, there's marginalized groups. I'm not taking it away from them. But there is a lot to appreciate just from the fact that we're living in relative peace and, and compared to, you know, you read a lot of these things in history and people were, were being moved around in ridiculous ways and life was so haphazard, you couldn't trust the next moment. That's why so many people look inward for happiness, like the happiness hypothesis. A lot of Buddhism probably comes from that, where people believed that the world is so tumultuous, the only place to find happiness is completely inward. Jonathan Haidt doesn't agree. He says, no, happiness comes from between. You can rely on happiness from belonging to a group and having a family and having good social relationships and all that stuff because it is more reliable today than it ever was. So that's just interesting food for thought. Um, so yeah, we could continue with uh, uh, verse seven. And Adam, right, we did verse six. And I know you're down. Oh, sorry, we, we, we did not do uh, verse six. Oh, we did that, okay. No, we didn't, sorry. Okay. For there is a time for every experience, right? Sounds a lot like uh, what we read in chapter three. Including the doom for a man's calamity overwhelms him, right? So there's going to be a time for death. There's going to be a time where, of reckoning of everything. Um, and, you know, in context of what he was just saying, that all this stuff, you just kind of got to get through all of it and keep your head down in front of a scary guy. But I'm sorry to break it to you. There's no running away. You could run away from that death spot right now, but you're going to die eventually. So just keep that in mind. I mean, he laments that, but that doesn't have to be the way that you approach death. There's, you know, we say on Yom Kippur, one of the Anna things, right? We say, why is that a mitzvah, quote unquote? It seems because it forces you to live a more beautiful life. You know, the, the, the stoic meditation for the last time, you imagine whatever you're doing is for the last time. It adds a poignancy. So you don't have to take this perspective of lamentation of it. They say that a man, I mean, the other man's has a lot of connections to brushes of mortality uh, and, and seeing death. Yeah. I mean, the most time is like if you're in the room with a dead person, and it's not to say that you are like a sinning by seeing death, but you're sinning by not reflecting on what death means. And, and, and this idea that we're all going to die. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, and Tahor is that yeah, would be the opposite, be the, the connection to infinite life. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm you... seeing the next piece in seven. Mm -hmm. Indeed, he does not know what is to happen, even when he's on the point of it happening, who can tell him. And I see this like sheep heading into slaughter. Mm. And he's probably smiling. You know, that uh, he really know. Yeah. That he has no idea what's coming for him. And he's a sheep. And who can tell him? You really gonna root it for the sheep? <laughs> you gonna tell the sheep? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe it will make the sheep live more meaningfully in that time that he's walking towards the gas chamber. You know, hypothetically, it's not literally the that. Panic. But 
I'm not, okay, obviously, if he's, li- if, he's, if he's five minutes away, fine. You know, if it's a little child, I, okay. But if it's, a, if it's an adult, if an adult is not aware of his death, the coming, I think it's a big problem. If a person is not aware that he's going to die one day, I think you should ruin it for him and tell him, yes, you're going to die one day. You're not invincible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll tell him. I'll be the one. Send him to me. I'll tell him he's going to die. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this uh, one of my favorite classes in college was death and bereavement because every Tuesday it forced me and every Thursday to confront this idea of death. And then I would go home and I would spend time with my family and I would think about it. And I would, it was an amazing experience because it really does force you to lead your life where you strip away all the nonsense. You throw the BS to the side because there's a lot of it in this world and there's not enough time to deal with certain types of people. There's not enough time to deal with certain types of situations. And once you realize you're going to die, you start clearing away and stripping away all the nonsense. And, you know, that's, that's I think, a very healthy thing to do. Um, so let's see, verse 7. Indeed, he does not know what is to happen, even when it is on the point of happening, who can tell him. Right? So nobody knows what the future holds. Um, so this is really interesting. A man does not know when he's close to death. We know that because you could die at any point. And that's why this, for the last time, meditation makes sense. You don't know. This could be the last time. Maybe, I, God forbid, I get hit by a truck on my way out of here. This will have been the last class I ever gave. Did I live it out that way? Did I live it in a poignant way? Did I make it meaningful? Or did I just treat it like a chapter eight out of 12, you know, or out of a million classes that I could give it? it that's the thing is you, you really need to feel into it and, and meditate on it. And that's, it's a practice. Um, you, human ignorance of the future is a frequent topic that we see in a lot of these types of books. Um, and very often, no matter where it's come from, whether it's Mishlech, Kohelet, Ben Sira, the statements seem to be targeted for the sake of inducing an attitude of humility. Um, and in contrast to that, it doesn't seem that that's what Kohelet's necessarily doing. It seems that he's taking more of this downbeat view just to express to you his view of this and how he's lamenting and he's troubled by this inevitable ignorance regarding what the future is going to hold. Instead of just saying, wow, let me be humbled by this, he says, no, this is wrong. And, I, you know, I'm just, I'm saddened by this and everything is absurd. So that's part of like the reason why I like to point out is sometimes we don't have to take his perspective. The facts could be the same. But if you're a master to- storyteller, in the words of Don Miguel Ruiz, you'll be a person who frames the same facts in a better way. So, yeah, we don't know what the future holds. You could say, wow, wow, wow. Or you could say, let me make sure that I live this moment very well. Let me live this day as though it was my first day and my very last day. What a, more, what a, what a beautiful perspective to take on the same facts that he's kind of lamenting. Right? I don't, I, again, I want to leave room for his perspective, but that's just the way I, I feel about it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm also in that death class that you're talking about right now. I'm relating so much to everything that you're saying. <laughs> um, but like even like that phrase makes me think of how Right now, I'm doing like a, a project on my niece and nephews. My sister read them books related to death for my death class and like spoke about death with them. Like they have a little raccoon book where the raccoon's friend doesn't come back to school. And, and so like my, my niece and nephew were talking to my sister about like, well, it's a little bit sad because his friend didn't come back. And like it wasn't, that's like me, like who's going to say it to them, right? And like my sister then had to reflect with me and like share her thoughts. 
why she thinks it's important, how it's nice to expose them, but in a nice way and show how the memory was kept. And it, it's like doing it in a unique way, um, which I forgot your last point that I was connecting it to. One was who's Miyagi Boba also. Oh, reframing. So one of the things that I used in my introduction was talking about like, you don't really hear 